Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Take it, John. Yeah, welcome to Boxes and Lines. I prefer when you do your shit Irish accent, to be honest. <laughs> I, I but, uh, <laughs> well, in honor of our Canadian guests, I thought maybe I should try to do like a Canadian accent. I don't know. Like, I don't know. The, the Canadians Ronan, are what's actually... What's going on, you big hoser? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess we better introduce our guests, and I apologize <laughs> right off the bat. And I'll consider editing that, but maybe not because it's funny. So our two guests today are uh, friends of the firm, friends of ours personally, but we have Peter Haynes who is the head of index and market structure research at TD Securities. And we have Doug Clark, who is head of equity market design at the TMX. Doug, has actually, he's a repeat offender here. He was on uh, wearing a different jersey a year or so ago, but we took him back because uh, we heard that he and Peter are friends. And as you'll probably learn over this podcast, there are characters uh, that both of them and I, I guess we'd say J- JR and I know you guys uh, really well. Uh, thrilled to have you on the podcast. But I thought I'd kick it off with, um, you know, before we go into Canadian market structure, uh, how do you guys know each other? Obviously, besides being Canadian in equities. <laughs> Don't we people actually- in Canada pretty much all know each other, I would think, right? <laughs> very, very true. Yeah. It's a small country. Mm-hmm. We actually met in 1993 at a poker game at a gentleman by the name of Dave LaPonte's place. Peter and I were both just going to TD Securities on the institutional side. Um, And then he was on the institutional derivative side. I was on the retail derivative side, and we got to know each other uh, through that. And then over the course of time, he was the dean of market structure in Canada, was the first guy to really start to do it. And after about 15 years, I felt bad for him and decided to get into it myself and show him how it should be done. (laughs) Peter, is that how you remember it? (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, Ronan. I was just looking up the word chameleon on the website there for Google, and I saw Victor Clarky. So uh, I think you'll I think you'll realize you today that uh, uh, that that chameleon definitely knows how to change his spots. Um, uh, Clarky's telling half the story. Uh, he doesn't like to admit the fact that if it wasn't for me, he wouldn't be married today to the lovely wife Joelle that he has because. Joelle was uh, best friends with a, a gal that I dated in university, and we were. Uh, sort of the connector into Clarkey getting to meet Joel and ultimately living happy, happily ever after up in, in Newmarket, Ontario, which is, I don't know, about 30 minutes north of the city. So uh, we have known each other for a long time. We share a passion for Canada, I would say, first and foremost. Uh, and we share a passion for markets and market structure. And as much as I like to give Clarkey a hard time for going to work for the TMX, I started my career there and, and I feel uh, such a place in my heart for the exchange and I rip them all the time whenever I don't like what they do but from the seat I'm in. But uh, I think it's a great hire to have Doug over there along with some of the other experts they brought in like Rizwan Awan and Todd Hargarden. So good good on the TMX for bringing in some really talented street um, people to, to make their organization better. I, I should mention Peter is also the host of uh, a very good podcast himself. I mean, it hasn't won all the awards that Boxes and Lines has, of course, but it's still quite uh, accomplished. Peter, Peter, the name of your podcast and how did you get involved in the podcast biz? I started, uh, I was, uh, both of you guys have been guests at our conference, which we're at 22, this will be the 23rd year, thankfully back in person. Uh, and 
I used to think that we did a conference once a year and kind of didn't really do anything to connect with people more frequently than that. So I, I think I was the first market structure podcast out there. Um, obviously, you guys have lapped me uh, <laughs> since you've come on board here and won all the awards. I would argue it's because you have a better marketing department. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, and that's not to be critical of TV's marketing department, it's just that we kept our podcast private until very recently. And it's called Bid Out, a market structure podcast from north of 49. And I think I've done 46 episodes. And um, and it's been fun. I know Ronan, we did one after the start of the pandemic. Yeah. And I had them come back to me and say, you realize there's a few words in that podcast we're going to you know, have to deal with. So, uh, but I, I do appreciate. <laughs> I, 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 you I was being... on my best behavior. I think I only said three or four, which is which is pretty good for us. But no, it, it's a great podcast. So I actually listened to the podcast um, because it's it's not just about Canadian market structure, which we're going to talk about today. But it, there's there's a wide swath of info on there. Um, the awards we win, Ramsey makes them up. If yeah. I come second, uh, if TD Securities comes second to you guys, then we're losing to an organization mm-hmm. that I respect. So, again, <laughs> enough of the mutual you-know-what here, eh? Yeah, nice. Check out Bid Out, everybody. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah. we, we did a podcast last fall on EU market structure with Nikki Petey, and I was really surprised how many people this resonated with, and we had a lot of people listen to it and reach out to us and say we should do other markets. So obviously – Canada is near and dear to my heart, too, from my RBC days and the founding of IEX. So we thought it'd be great to have you two on here. So I guess first question, which is a kind of broad question, but it'll get you going. Uh, How would you explain Canadian market structure to an American audience? Uh, I'll take a crack at that one to start with, Ronan. Um, And I would start with an overarching comment, if I can, because I certainly hear this often. I would never, if I was in the United States, compare the U.S. market structure to any other market in the world. And that's just simply based on the fact that the U.S. is unique in having 50% of the world market capitalization, maybe 70% of the world market volume. You, you have to have rules that work for that type of market and everyone else has to have rules. We can take best practices and see if they fit, but I would argue that when people say, hey, they're, they're doing things really well in Canada, you should adopt those rules in the U.S. or UK or somewhere else, I'd always argue that they might work well in Canada or the UK, but they wouldn't necessarily fit the market structure you have south of the border. So with that said, there are a lot of similarities in our market to uh, the US. We'll start with the fact that we also have multiple markets. We have our quotes protected uh, by a trade-through rule. Um, We have one thing that's a little bit different than the US is that our primary market, the one that... uh, the chameleon works for now is the TMX. <laughs> um, it has 60% market share. Um, and most of the resting orders in the Canadian market will sit on the TMX. Um, we have no off exchange wholesaling. Uh, and there's a rule that says that if you'd like to internalize flow, you must do so with material price improvement, which is considered to be a trading increment, which today would be one cent or on a one on a tick constrained name, a half a penny. Which I However, assume means that you have a lot less internalized order flow. We do, I'd say, have less internalized order flow. But one thing that came when they got rid of the trading floor back in the 90s was they created a rule that's unique to Canada called broker preferencing, where if you are executing an order through the broker um, that is it has an order on the, on the, in the order book uh, from the same firm but isn't necessarily at the top of the queue but is at the best price, you will internalize your orders when you execute uh, in the order book. Uh, And that feature was designed as a sort of just a a management feature, uh, order management feature that was created again in the 90s. 
But what I would say, John, is that while we don't have off-exchange wholesaling, the economics have been created in a similar fashion in what we call inverted fee structures or take-make fee structures, which have about 25% market share in Canada, which coincidentally would be about how much retail flow we have. Almost every retail order is, is executed on an inverted venue or when you take liquidity, you get paid a rebate. Well, that sounds very similar to uh, the wholesaling model that exists in the United States. And that, again, I would argue is something that frustrates me when I hear Chair Gensler say that Canada has banned payment for order flow, which you've heard him say several times. We have banned off-exchange wholesaling, but arguably the same economics exist on exchange, and we've got a lot of segmentation in that market structure where retail trades directly with a wholesaler quoting through an exchange venue. Uh, and then finally, just quickly, market data. We don't use a SIP here in Canada. Uh, market data is consumed through the vendor services uh, that brokers would subscribe to. Uh, and that became a problem when new markets would come along and we'd have to subscribe to for more data. Uh, and it became costly. So the regulators have put some rules in place to cap that uh, explosive increase in market data. But uh, Clarky, do you think I covered everything off there? Or is there anything else you'd say to an American audience about Canada? Yeah, there's there's a couple of things I'd add to that. I think that's a pretty good recap. If uh, you know our current uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, his father was Prime Minister at one point, and he always said uh, Canada is basically when you are that close to the U.S., it's like sleeping with an elephant. You've you've got to be a lot more aware of them than they are of you. So our market structure really rhymes with U.S. market structure in terms of the dark pools, the fragmentation, the order types. We have so many interlisted names that you know when Chairman Gensler talks about changing tick size, we're instantly talking about how would we react to that? We would almost have to follow suit. The same when Redfern and Glayton were talking about getting rid of rebates, we would have had to follow suit. So our market structure tends to be similar, which has been great for the prop firms that have tried to come to Canada since, say, 2007. It's same time zone, similar language, similar set of rules, all the the various APIs and whatnot, the exchange protocols are, are similar, if not identical. We're now mostly U.S. venues up here with NASDAQ and CBOE um, having more venues than everybody else combined. So it's very U.S.-centric with those changes. The one thing I would say is we have historically been, because we're a smaller market and we're a somewhat less political market, our regulators are overseen by the government, but you don't have the the Republicans are in the White House. The Republicans do- dominate the SEC type of setup up in Canada. So As a smaller market, less political regulation, we've been able to innovate. So we did electronic trading back in 77. We were fully electronic in 93, long before the U.S. We had the first ETF. Uh, Ironically, Peter was one of the four or five folks on that team at the TMX back in the 90s who put out the, the TIPS ETF, which was the first to trade globally. We were the first bot deal. We went decimals long before the U.S. did. We've had sounds something like the that, elephant stole your homework. Well, that's that's <laughs> it. I mean, we have we have a version of CAT that IROC has had with the data that has all the data, and we don't pay billions of dollars for it in you know unknown bills. So because we're small, we've been a petri dish, and the U.S. has been able to look at some of the things we do. And you would know this from your RBC days, Ronan, and, and borrow it and change it and put it into their market structure. But we can never stray too far away from the elephant because it just it doesn't behoove us being so close. Well, I appreciate the visual of uh, sleeping with the elephant. You said that, and I saw Ronan's eyes light up, and I thought, oh, Jesus, where's he going to go with this? But unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. we um, uh, managed I, to I had a few seconds, disaster, and I stopped. But, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can I tell a quick but, story? 
Yes, oh God. please. It better not yeah, be Doug, about an elephant. <laughs> Doug mentioned 1977 when we launched CAT's computer-assisted trading system on the TSX. I was nine years old then, so obviously I wasn't around. But the reality <laughs> was it was an innovative development in the Canadian market. And what happened was it was for what they considered to be less liquid, difficult names on the trading floor that they would put on the CAT system because it would be easier just to kind of worry about those once-in-a-while trades through an electronic system. There was a lot of resistance on the floor to expanding the use of cats, as you guys can imagine, the inertia that exists on a trading floor. And then after a while, it kind of got dormant and they sold the technology, if I remember correctly, to the French exchange. And um, when they decided that they needed to get the TMX, wanted to get more involved in electronic trading, they ended up having to buy the system back that they originally created from the French exchange uh, in order to be able to expand the use of the system in Canada. Uh, so nice. one of those made in Canada success stories that the French won mm-hmm. on. And, and when they brought that system in, it used to be if TD Bank had an order, say they were a, a seller of Canadian tire stock, and they got a, a buy order in, the broker would walk into the pit, pull out his own sell and match the two orders together. And so you were never buying stock as a broker when you had a sell order in the book and not trading with yourself. When they got brought in cat and got rid of the floor, that's when the broker said, that's the one feature you can't take away. And that's how broker preferencing came to be, which you guys are familiar with because you're the, I think the only exchange in the US that has that feature. Yeah, we, we had it as an ATS, but uh, when we went to file oh, right. for yeah. exchange yeah, status, yeah. We, we weren't expressively told no dice, but we were sort of told no dice. Yeah. I wanted to back up real quick, Doug, on uh, before before we ask you questions on something that you said, and we hadn't necessarily prepped for this, but you mentioned interlisted earlier on, and we do have a number of people who are not uh, market structure folks that listen in on this podcast to hear Ramsey shit Irish uh, accent and now his bad. <laughs> I can't imagine anyone. who but, they uh, are. Could, I don't could know you who they explain, are, but... uh, like, it, it, interlisted just means uh, companies that list primarily, primarily on the TSX, but also list in the U.S. and trade in the U.S. as an interlisted. What what percentage of Canadian uh, stocks do that? It's percentage-wise of stocks, it's yeah. something like 10% of stocks. Percentage of volume, it's it's close it's to high, 50%. Right? Okay. And it's as firms become big, like TD Bank, for example, you want to make yourself available to a bigger universe. Um, so they're going there and they're... There's a lot of pension plans that can't buy outside of the U.S., although that's become less prevalent in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, so it's it's the biggest names. Five of the big six Canadian banks are interlisted. I was going to say one good rule of thumb that we've always used. It's not perfect, but when you think about where stocks are owned on Canadian names, we would look at their um, at the percentage of market share on an interlisted name that trades in Canada. So, for instance, in the Canadian banks that Clarky mentioned a second ago, they're very very well owned in Canada. Maybe ninety percent of the shareholders or or close to it would be in Canada. A lot of retail, and you'd see ninety percent of the volume hit trade in Canada. But for a gold name like Barrick, which is Canadian but trades a lot in the U.S., maybe seventy percent of the volumes in the U.S. That would reflect the fact that seventy percent of the shareholders are global. It's not a perfect science, but it's a pretty good indication of where the shareholder base is. Makes sense. Interesting. Well, maybe if we can pivot to a question around U.S. market structure where the Canadian experience might be relevant, um, and, and in particular with respect to uh, retail trading. So I'd be interested in, in at least a couple of things. One is uh, there's been a lot of talk here, of course, about the um, 
increase in uh, retail participation in the markets, uh, uh, retail trading and meme stocks, uh, et cetera. Um, I'd be interested in your perspective as uh, whether the experience in Canada has mirrored that in the U.S. in terms of the proportion of trading that retail is responsible for. And then uh, the, the second um, question is the general debate in the U.S. about not just payment for order flow, but whether retail orders are better served if they are sent to exchanges or have the opportunity to participate with other orders and get more meaningful price improvement. But presumably that is a difference in Canada, and I'd be interested in your ideas on whether there are actually uh, retail orders end up getting better treatment and better price improvement than they would otherwise. Yeah, and we're are... done. Thank you very much for being our <laughs> guest, uh, Peter. <laughs> it was a long wind-up, but it was a, it was a smart, incisive question designed to yield thoughtful answers. Please, go. Yeah, so uh, on the retail participation, we absolutely saw in February, March, January of 2021, a massive uptick in retail flow mostly on lower price stocks. So by volume, we saw retail north of 40% of uh, volume on our markets. In terms of actual value traded, it would still have probably been south of 20%. A lot of the out uh, out of favor energy names in particular became very popular in Canada. Uh, so our version of the Hertz rental cars was the energy sector. Uh, so we definitely did see that uptick. We don't have free trading for the most part. We have a couple of platforms that do free trading. So we didn't see necessarily some of that um, those pro traders come to market that, that you saw in the U.S. even before Reddit in November of 2019 when you saw free trading and you saw a bit of a mix in retail. Um, but we did see the participation. We do think that that having that retail has some notable effects on the market. So Peter mentioned that inverted is about 20 to 25% of market share up in Canada by volume, slightly lower by notional because, again, retail tend to trade slightly lower price stocks. But that's true on, quote, uh, tick-restricted names, too. So stocks that are trading in a penny in the U.S., you're really being able to trade them, you know, a third of a penny or a quarter of a penny cheaper through the inverted pricing up in Canada. And that's not happening in the U.S. You, you see, you know, inverted volume in the U.S. is 4%. So we think the fact that you're able to trade against more micro to short-term uninformed flow, it's a little less toxic. Um, there's, you know, the, the actual exchange experience is probably better, better in general, not venue by venue, but in general across all venues. Where it really highlights is in the option market. The Canadian option market is nowhere near as big as the U.S. option market. But when we compare options on interlisted names, so again, names trading in both the U.S. and Canada, like a TD Bank, like a Barrick Gold, the option volumes in Canada are significantly smaller than the U.S. But the depth of book and the spread on those names, if we compare like contracts, so the first near month out of the money option against the U.S. first near month out of the money option in the money and down the line, we see that spread and depth in Canada is significantly better in the U.S. Uh, in Canada than it is in the U.S. Volume would tell you it should be the opposite. Volume would tell you that the market in the U.S. is more liquid, so you should have better depth and spread. We have it up in Canada, and we think that's because you don't have flow being uh, siphoned off to, to go elsewhere, you have a chance to look at that least informed flow and therefore you're going to quote in greater size. That kind of, to our mind, informs the the whole debate around siphoning flow off, 
I, I don't want to get into payment for order flow because there's a lot of flow that's not paid for that that interacts in the exact same way in the U.S. But but we do think that it getting all parties to the table is is a better marketplace and it shows up in our markets. And I would add that um, well, Doug makes a good point about the Canadian option quotes being tighter than the U.S. Uh, meanwhile, we have uh, Chair Gensler musing about retail auctions and looking at a market structure coming from the options market, which is, if you ask anyone, not exactly the, the model of, um, of perfection. Uh, and obvious, and part of the reason why those U.S. quotes are going to be wider is because everything goes to auction. Uh, at least that's sort of the, the, the feedback I get. Uh, I wanted to add one other thing, um, and that is the Canadian options, uh, the amount of Canadian options, names that are Canadian that trade in the U.S. options market because of the existence of payment versus in Canada, where the exchanges don't offer payment for order flow on options. Uh, that's a bit frustrating. And then northbound on names, you mentioned, Ronan, the question about interlisted. Well, while there might be 200 interlisted names in Canada, that leaves us with a 2,000 or 2,500 non-interlisted names. And from time to time, U.S. investors uh, want to trade those names. And on the retail side, it used to be they would come up through some sort of routing mechanism, whether it be to Doug's old shop at ITG or elsewhere, or Virtu, um, those arrangements used to come north of the border. Now we don't see any of that non-interlisted flow make it to Canada because it trades in the OTC market in the U.S. to so the AF-class symbols. Why? Because the wholesalers are giving payment in the U.S. And FINRA, they kind of hide behind some FINRA best X obligations. But the reality is, where are those quotes coming from? Those quotes are coming from where the Canadian book is. And uh, it's a shame, unfortunately, what the study, I know, Clarky, I think the exchange has done some work on this, something like 95% of executions in the US OTC market on Canadian names are done at prices that are worse than they would have been executed in Canada. It's been a bone of contention for us for a long time. Hmm. That's crazy. I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. It's a scandal. We need to to get that changed. (laughs) We'll promote that. Uh, with our with our A class marketing department, Peter. But, and D- Doug, <laughs> but Doug Clarky, you've been involved in some of those conversations in your previous life with Finra and elsewhere. Why don't we get any action or traction on on bringing that flow back to Canada? Yeah, and I'll I'll give a shout out to uh, Jimmy Toes at the STA. He's done a great job trying to educate Finra. The late Tom Gira was interested in this, and uh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But it really, when you talk to most of the, the large U.S. retailers, they will tell you that if they trade through the U.S. quote once, they'll get a call from FINRA. They can trade through the Canadian quote a thousand times and not get a call. And so a lot of it comes down to FINRA guidance. And if they were to guide those firms that you've got to consider away markets that are open, have similar time zones and have you know reasonable access, then the, the U.S. investor would be getting a much better uh, experience trading Canadian names. Well, I don't know why they wouldn't consider it. seems to me best execution should not be like a geographic concept. You ought to be able to, you know, get whatever the best price is wherever you go. So maybe we can plan to, like, do a little – get a little kick in the pants to FINRA to, uh, uh, you know, get this fixed. Maybe if, if Haynes hadn't made fun of his marketing department, his firm would do it, but uh, well, they're no yeah, longer well, going to listen to him. Fenner, yeah. John, That's Fenner's a great point. Bit- FINRA's busy right now reading the 130-page uh, House report on GameStop where <laughs> they are in many ways implicated for not having done a good enough job on the um, the, the so-called the sweeps and, and things that they would go in to see these so-called super broker. By the way, that was a new term I had read today uh, that the uh, Robin Hoods of the world are now referred to by the, uh, by the government as super brokers. 
Uh, really? And uh, <laughs> that was a new word. I'd never seen that one until I yeah. read that report. So yeah, I just I wait for mean, your synopsis on those reports to be well, honest, exactly. Peter, as I'm well sure, as demonstrating. I'm not going to read <laughs> yeah. the fucking thing. There's no way. But it's so <laughs> helpful to we, have you. We got we got fucking podcasts to record. Anyway, no, no, no. we got all I, this way through without one f bomb, and then I yeah. just screwed it up. Yeah, John, That's you my fault. you you, you mm-hmm. threw it first. You got mm-hmm. you got us angry, Peter. So you mentioned the Neo speed bump market. There is also your, your speed bump market, which is Alpha, right? So. Both of those markets have been in action, I, I don't know, five plus years, maybe eight years, time flies by. Um, I mean, how's your experience with that? Like, how, what's the client feedback like? Do, do speed bumps work up there the way we feel they work down here? Speed bumps work for uh, the liquidity providers who are trying to avoid getting picked off by other liquidity providers. And that's really the key to, to do it. There's a great paper by a, a Canadian academic called Every Cloud Has a Silver Lining, and it's what happens to U.S. ETF markets when microwave networks are down because of weather. And what they find is when the microwave networks are down, the fastest of the fast guys lose their edge, you actually see spreads tighten and depth grow in the ETF market because the other market makers feel like they're not being picked off. That's the idea of a speed bump. A speed bump's not supposed to protect you from an oversized institutional order that's trying to take the entire visible book. So if you see 20,000 shares uh, over five venues, you should still be able to get 20,000. It's debatable on whether that has happened. And so I think the institutional community doesn't love the speed bumps and and maybe we've got some work to do there and stay tuned TMX fans we will uh, we'll be coming back on that one but I think the retail guy ends up getting uh, a lot of liquidity on this taker maker so they get the rebates and result the uh, the retail brokers can offer very low commissions and a lot more services than they could if they were paying higher fees the liquidity providers get a chance to trade with uh, the less short-term informed flow. So for most of the community, it does work. Peter's giving me a frown. He will tell me something different. <laughs> no, I, I I want to just make sure you and I are on the same page here, Doug. If, if a speed bumping market in Canada had a uniform speed bump that treated all in, inbound and outbound orders the same, it could be protected, I believe. Is no, it's still a speed bump. Still a speed bump. All inbound and outbound, yes. It's, it's yeah, so, but because it, the post-only order type, for instance, at the yes. TMX Alpha... That right. creates the uh, the inconsistencies with respect to yeah. uh, cancel times. So I, yeah. but I don't. It's never been done, or we have. We don't have a. Okay. Uh, there's a third one on the way, by the way, Ronan. Um, the small market that Doug referred to earlier, uh, Omega or Trade Logics. One of their venues is planning to launch a, a third uh, speed bump marketplace at some point. Uh, I don't know in the next year or so. I think Doug, have you heard anything more on that? I haven't seen anything firm or in writing, so I don't. Uh, I suspect they are, but. I don't know for sure. Yeah, and, and then, well, if we don't know, we don't know, but then that would be an unprotected one as well? Or, Peter, are you yeah. saying no, no one's filed to do a protected speedboat market yet? Right. Uh, I think yeah. that would be unprotected because somewhere in there, there'll be some type of order type that uh, is, doesn't, you know, doesn't have to deal with a delay on cancellation. Unless I'm confused, all of the, the speed bumps that existence in Canada are, are different from our speed bump. Not yes. that you know, ours is necessarily the but, but so I mean there may be some justification um, for having those unprotected there um, that doesn't apply to IEXs, which again is three hundred fifty millionths of a second and um, you know, operates. Brilliant. Um, it's very brilliant. <laughs> yes, he pats himself on the back. So I, I have a I have a I have a broader question. To both of you. So um, you, you mentioned you guys met each other in 1993. So 
You've both been in this industry north of 25 plus years. What are the most important lessons each of you have learned over that period of time? Told you it was broad. (laughs) No, I'm happy to start on that one. Um, I I know that uh, when I was thinking about answering this question, it it definitely makes you wonder where's the best advice you got in your career and and what was it? So I would argue just, again, being being honest and, and working hard is very, very simple and good rules, uh, although not necessarily everyone that enters a business today, I'd say, would, would follow the, the at least the working hard side. Uh, but I, I think from my perspective was really finding your niche. Uh, it really makes it hard for the firm you work for uh, to replicate your role if you can find your niche and uh, and go with it from there and build your sort of brand around your niche. And that, That's been what I think has been the most important lesson I've learned personally in my career. I work for a great organization. I've been here for 27 years. Uh, are there days when I'm frustrated? Of course there is, but the reality is it's a great organization. It's given me an opportunity to find my niche and then go with it. Well, I've been trying to do that every day, but my accent, Ronan still gives me shit every day, but... Um, that's your niche. Good, yeah, that's my <laughs> yeah, niche. Yeah, yeah. You make me happy, John. <laughs> there it you, is. You well, make me laugh. I'm glad <laughs> I can serve in that way in any event. <laughs> I love you like a pet rock. <laughs> <Yes. Doug. laughs> I'm, I'm actually going to steal part of uh, an answer you gave at uh, the TMX conference a couple of weeks ago and part of Peter's as well. You you talked about um, you were up on stage with, with Rizwan Awan at the TMX conference, and he asked you about lessons learned. And you yeah. said, just let the, the personal stuff fall off you like water off your back. And I think over the years, I've written some opinion pieces that some other people in the market, uh, it wasn't good for their business model and and it's gotten personal at times. And I just wish I'd walked away from some of those fights because quite frankly, it's a waste of time. And there's the old saying that never uh, never debate an idiot because people have a, a tough time telling the two of you apart. And I, I wish I'd taken <laughs> a little bit more of that. Um, but the other thing is, to, to Peter's point, having unfortunately been in the in the situation where in tough markets, you occasionally have to let people go. You always look around the desk and you say, who can I afford to get rid of? Who can I afford to get rid of? And it's that guy with the niche. It's the kid that understands international clearing or who knows how to put an order into the futures market or whatever and has figured out how to differentiate. If you've got five guys that all look like they could be named Chad and who all do the same thing, then the one that shows up last is the one at the door. Don't be that guy. And then lastly, and this is the thing I always say to young kids is have a goddamn opinion. The number of times I've seen people write research reports and at the end of it, you go a lot of great graphs, a lot of great words. Some of them were even three syllables, but what's his point? Have a point, have an opinion. Wall street pays for opinions uh, don't be afraid to be wrong because the end user doesn't care if you're right or wrong. They want to go through your logic and try and figure out why are you a buyer of Tesla? Why do you think this index event is going to go this way? Why do you hate this speed bump? If you have formed an opinion and state the opinion, they can work through the logic. If you just say, well, the OSC said this, and so this is going to happen, This A, it puts me to sleep. B, there's no logic there for me to follow. I have no idea what's going to happen. Don't be shy to have an opinion. Nice. I, I like it. Um, I, I well, you know, I said it, so I agree with you. But yeah, it's it's hard not to take things personal. But when you can shirk that aside, uh, you you sleep much better at night. Because yeah, I used to get Irish angry over just nonsense. Uh, anyway, Irish I let, I let, uh, angry. So Clark, yeah. Clark, you, go ahead, Clark. You when I get critical of when you read our research next week and we're critical of the TMX, are you going to heed your own personal advice? 
<laughs> I mean, to be honest, I, I basically only get angry at people who I, I respect or I think have readership, so I'll be fine. <laughs> nice. I think Ooh. there's some risk. <laughs> I'm the idiot. Look, this is great, yeah. John. I'm the idiot. Uh, before, yeah. before John yeah. asks the question of questions, we ask everybody. I, I, w- I wanted to ask one more fun one because I did work for a Canadian bank, so like Bay Street is the Canadian version of uh, Wall Street. And um, I'd say like it, it, they're – Bay Street and Wall Street, they're kind of a long way from each other culturally, and Canadians are known to be pretty down-to-earth and just frankly, like, Canadian nice, relaxed, but uh, I suspect you guys have some fun from time to time. So I wanted to ask you, what's your best trading floor prank that you've seen up there? For that me, you can say a on lot. a podcast. Yeah, I was going to say. I just, <laughs> and on disclaimer. ours, you can pretty much say whatever the fuck you yeah. want. Disclaimer, <laughs> disclaimer, because I like working for TD. I won't be telling a few of the stories I could tell, but uh, but I, I think back to Halloween uh, way back, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And um, it was the day before Halloween and our head of equity trading looked at the intern beside him and said, uh, uh, what are you dressing up as tomorrow? And poor kid just like turned white. He was, what do you mean dress up? He says, oh, are you kidding me? I'm dressing up as Superman and Finn over there. He's going to be Chewbacca. You better get your suit. Like everybody dresses up for Halloween. And so sure enough, fast forward to the next day, this guy comes in, he is in a bear costume from top to bottom, comes rolling right into the middle of the floor, and there's not one person on the floor who's dressed up. And, you know, God love him. He wore that suit the entire day, never took it off. He totally got the joke. And I don't know, from at least one that I'm allowed to tell on air, I thought that one was pretty funny. That's classic. Doug, have you got one? I do. Uh, the early years at ITG, um, we had a, a gentleman on the desk, Dougie Gold. Dougie was a lot like you, Ronan. He was a character, uh, always had a one-liner, <laughs> piece of work. He had been married with a daughter, got divorced, lost a house, had a long-term... Not true of Ronan. We, yeah, we okay, need to okay. clarify. Okay. Yes, yes. Yep. Unless, a, unless I get served papers live on a podcast. <laughs> He had a, uh, a girlfriend after that. They became common law. They broke up. He lost another house. He was now dating uh, a, an analyst at J.P. Morgan who I'd worked with in a previous life. And she was younger than him. She wanted the marriage. He did not want to lose a third house. So it was an ongoing debate within what was otherwise a happy relationship. He was telling the desk one day about this long weekend trip they had to Montreal they were going to stay at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. They were going to the casino. It was going to be awesome. She was expecting a proposal. He had told her there was no proposal coming. And so we decided to make sure that when they walked into the hotel room, there were two dozen roses, a big red balloon with the white words, Joanne, will you marry me? And uh, oh, God. oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at the last minute, we did give her a heads up. So she knew he did not know. And she, <laughs> okay, good. she used it as an excuse to rewrite all the rules for the weekend. So the casino was out. They were going to the gallery that she wanted to go to. Uh, he came in four days later, hotter than hot, screaming at me how they'd broken up and she was never going to talk to him and I'd ruined his life. Meanwhile, she was on IB telling me what a great weekend it was. When he found out she was in on the joke, he absolutely lost his mind. <laughs> That's a good one. Is that when he, is that when he came and worked for us? Pretty much, yeah. So it was. We got him with a great joke, and we got him over to you. So it was a win-win. Nice. Yeah. That's yeah, a good one. On. 
Yeah, we got to we got to do this question again, John. John, what what what's the question? Oh, we got to do it. The question of questions. Well, I mean, yeah. assuming that you guys have ever listened to a Box and Lines episode, you presumably you know. And if you don't, um, your your mind isn't working too well. So, uh, <laughs> what is your best? What is your favorite Wall Street movie, and why? Uh, for me, at four o'clock, you're a dinosaur, buddy boy. So there's nothing better than Wall Street, the movie itself. And for me. Um, my father, uh, when I started in this business, he was not the religious type, uh, but he did quote the Bible when he said that I had fallen amongst thieves when I started working in this business and he passed away about 10 years ago. And I, I remember he went to, he took me to the movie wall street in 1987. I was 19 years old. And of course, you know, he watches that movie and believes everything that's happening there and just looks at me like. You're going to be falling amongst thieves, young young son. And here I am, what, 40 <laughs> years later. Um, that is absolutely my favorite movie that represents this industry, uh, everything about it. I just think it's it was fabulously done. It was a great story. And it doesn't age at all. I, I would watch it if it was on TV tonight. So that's my – what about you, Clarky? Yeah, the last time I did this podcast, I had just shown my two uh, boys trading places. So that was the vote last time. But I will go with Wall Street as well. I wasn't 19. I was probably six or seven when it came out. Um, but I'm, I'm – uh, I am also Ouch. a big fan. And I will say, mm. Peter, I think your father was religious until you were born, and then he sort of gave it up. <laughs> I might have been a mistake. I'm still I, – I test my mother trust, on that regularly. But, trust uh, me. You are a mistake. Trust me. <laughs> we did have a guy, though. I'll tell Clarky and I both worked with a guy, Dean Mifsud. I don't know where Dean is now, but Dean could quote every single line of that movie. He must have seen it a thousand times. So he was uh, – every time I walked past him, he would look at me and make some comment about the movie. And, and I'd always got my blood blood going here. So definitely my favorite movie. What, I'll ask you guys. What's your favorite Wall Street movie? Is it, is it going to be Flash Boys? Oh, jeez. Um, uh, yeah, the the old ever. pivot question, John. Fuck, yeah. you go first. <laughs> I don't think they're ever going to make Flash Boys. I don't know. If it was going to happen, it would have happened by then. I, I, assume, I don't know. I always say uh, Boiler Room because I like the scene where the uh, where the SEC guys kind of like rush in with their guns drawn, you <laughs> know, like force people up against the wall. That that. I fantasize about doing that when I was at the SEC. I know. I know. He, he wants the he wants the SEC windbreaker, yeah. and we'll give him yeah. a plastic gun. I won't give yeah. him a real gun, but yeah. you know, John can arrest people. I, I guess I would say probably the original Wall Street movie because similar to Liars Poker, one was written, one was written, uh, written as a movie to sort of dissuade people from working on Wall Street, and both of them totally attracted me to wanting to work on Wall Street. And you said it, Peter, it's, it's kind of one of those m- movies that you could come in in the seventh minute or the 67th minute and you can still leave it on and enjoy it. And I can't really say that about other Wall Street movies, although I, I, I think I said to Doug when he said Trading Places that that's an epic pick as well. So I'll, I'll go with Trading Places and the original Wall Street. There you go. Anyway, no one no one leaves our podcast with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's next to nothing. It's we'll be sending you a pair nothing. of your very own boxes and lines socks. Uh, Doug, you, you, you'll be on your second pair, but you'll love <laughs> them all the same. And uh, look, we, we appreciate you guys uh, joining the podcast. You're great guests. You've been great friends of ours for a number of years, and long may it continue. And cheers. Boxes and lines, over and out. Over and out. God bless you. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Sarah Forster, with support from Benstown. 
for more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.